Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Hello, everyone. Steven Shapiro is joining us today for a special two-part episode of the Phase World Podcast. Steven is a keynote speaker, author, who cultivates innovation by showing leaders and their teams how to approach, tackle, and solve their business challenges. In this episode, Steven talks about how he helps people and companies innovate and tap into their collective wisdom, as well as how he conditions himself to step up on that stage in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people. The secret sauce resides in both mastery and performance. Steven teaches you how to engage your audience, not only intellectually, but also physically, emotionally. So even if you're not a public speaker, I'm sure you can benefit from this conversation, such as presenting in front of the clients, facilitating a discussion with coworkers, etc. So Steven was not afraid to address a very sensitive topic. That is, what are some of the misconceptions associated with innovation? and how innovation as a movement has changed over time in the past 20 years. Perhaps one of my favorite concepts Stephen brought up is instead of looking outside of the box, we should find a better box. Stephen is an innovative leader who helps all of us get unstuck. So what does that mean? Have you noticed that our confirmation bias kicks in when we seek clues for solutions? In other words, we only see evidence that support and prove our beliefs. Stephen helped us realize the why behind the tendency of human behaviors and what we can do to change and see things differently. I had a ton of fun interviewing Stephen, and I really hope you enjoy this podcast. All the show notes, including links, tools, and resources can be found on my website at faceworld.com forward slash podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So I have your bio. There's a lot of information about you. Uh, you're a public figure. But one thing I like to do is still let the audience kind of hear for, uh, in your voice of who you are and um, what you've done, what you find the most excitement in. Okay. Well, you know, it's, uh, as, as we talk, I, mean, I started thinking back to when I was a, like a little kid. And one of the things which I always loved since I was a very, very, very little kid uh, were uh, mysteries, like mm -hmm. murder mysteries, uh, brain teasers, and magic. And I, what I've realized is those are actually the three things which still, in many respects, run through my entire life. Because mm -hmm. uh, to me, innovation is very closely related to all of those. And that's really what I've dedicated my professional life to is the world of innovation, which is how do we see the world differently? How do we challenge our assumptions? Which, if you do lateral brain teasers, it's all about challenging assumptions. And murder mysteries is avoiding the red herrings. We go down a path and you know, somebody gives us clues that lead us to believe someone was the murderer when in fact it was someone completely different. And mm -hmm. that's essentially what we have to do with innovation is we have to question everything. Don't assume that the facts we're given are correct. Don't assume that the products we're working on are the correct products. And so uh, sort of circling back, I mean, I, I basically have dedicated my life to innovation, which is about helping people and companies 
figure out how do you think differently and how do you tap into the collective wisdom of the people inside and outside of your organization. Mm -hmm. And I've had the great opportunity to do that while I was at Accenture. So I was there for 15 years and I uh, led a 20,000 person practice around innovation and growth and process improvement. And that was a lot of fun. And then about 13 years ago, I left that and I've been speaking and writing books on the topic. So that's pretty much uh, brings you up to speed. That's a great intro. And in terms of mystery, it, it just like lit up a part of my, my mind is, um, I forgot to tell you that uh, when I was a little kid, I realized that's one thing, investigation, mystery, or something that I was so keen on and actually wrote a bunch of novels now. It's, I just laugh when I read them. So I feel like that's almost like an instant connection. That's one thing I can't believe I've known you for years, but <laughs> we haven't even talked about. So one question I had, given that, as you know, my background, I worked in consulting for three years and then Sapien became Sapien Nitro and now at Arnold. So I've been in this sort of consulting um, agency world for a long time and I've had, had my struggles and still do uh, on a day, daily basis. And I feel like something that um, you would understand from your Accenture days. And I was wondering, what was that trigger? You know, perhaps it wasn't just one day, one event, but something you know um, that you realize over a period of time to transition from Accenture to what you do now. Well, I, I think part of it actually goes way back to when I was even younger than being interested in mysteries. When I was a little kid, I loved playing the saxophone, and so I was in bands, and that was probably my primary hobby since I was about. Uh, say about seven eight years old so I was playing the saxophone in particular jazz and improvisational jazz and so I love the stage because I was as a jazz player as a sax player and as a improv improvisational sax player I was often front and center on a stage and being a shy awkward kid mm -hmm. uh, there was something really nice about being front and center on a stage uh, so I, I sort of I think I've always had that you know loving of the, the the platform so to speak mm -hmm. and then I went to college and I was a pretty crappy student uh, my, oh, oh, me. No. I'll show you my transcripts later <laughs> I was not a good student part of it was I just I didn't like taking tests I didn't like regurgitating things that everybody else was doing I really I like the creativity side of things and there's not a lot of opportunity for creativity mm -hmm. so if we were asked to do a project on something where we could define what the project was, I would always kick butt on those. And it's the only reason why I graduated. But when it came time to memorization and tests and me doing what everybody else was doing, I just I had a lack of motivation around it. And my point with that is that my only A plus, and where I went to school, we had actually had A pluses <laughs> in addition to A's. My only A plus was in public speaking. So I was sort of a little bit of foreshadowing, I think. Uh, went to Accenture uh, right out of college, 1986. And I was a typical consultant like most people, but after a period of time, I started getting more and more into training, and then that led into speaking. And then I realized I'm really good at speaking. And uh, basically, when my first book came out, which I wrote at Accenture, so I wrote my first book while I was at Accenture, basically I had my book launch party uh, October 10th, 2001, and my last day with Accenture was October 11th, 2001. Wow. So. I think it was just a lot of foreshadowing earlier on that I liked. I liked the stage a lot. Uh, I'm not an actor, mm -hmm. so I don't think I would have ever gone down that path. Considered music, but this seems to be almost like the best of 
my engineering background and my love for innovation and my love for the stage, bringing them all together. Great. I think that's a, that's very relatable to me as well, uh, coming into podcasting. Um, after 15 years prior to this, uh, I had I was like a, a, not a professional DJ, but definitely worked at a radio station for about a year and absolutely loved it and loved the thrill. Um, speaking of being front and centered, um, I would like to just uh, introduce some of the books to the audience and we can dive into some of them. Clearly, there are at least four books involved. Um, the first book you mentioned just now that you wrote, um, was that one, uh, is that one of the, the, the ones I'm looking in front of me right now? Yeah, the first one I wrote was 24-7 Innovation. So that's the one. That's the one. I always say that if you suffer from insomnia, that's the <laughs> book you want. I mean, it's, I, uh, the, I'm proud of it because it was my first book, but I would not say it was my best book. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, it was, it was okay. But it was my first commercially published book, and mm -hmm. so I was very excited about it, and it, it launched my career, so I'm certainly very happy for it. Mm -hmm. I think people are, it, this is a theme, that people are very critical of their own work, and um, uh, you know, even, even for some of the younger professionals to so write an email to present or uh, in front of a status meeting for five minutes, and people really freak out. And when I talk to my friends at work, some of them really do. So. What do you think was, as you're going through the scripts, and I talked to some other authors about launching a book, I mean, just the amount of work, uh, the amount of revisions, iterations that go into it, it's just daunting uh, to me. So, um, so I think you should be happy with it. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I did the book. I also learned quite a few things. One is that writing a book is actually the easy part. Interesting. It's the launching and promoting the book that's the difficult part. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, putting words on paper isn't that difficult mm -hmm. in the scheme of things. I mean, if you have a thought, mm -hmm. you write it down. And if you can't write it down, you can record it. Mm -hmm. So you could easily, I mean, if you are, let's just say, a trainer or a consultant, you could easily just, as we're doing here, record a conversation, record a training session, mm -hmm. transcribe it, and you have at least the makings of a book. So... The book part is the easy part in some respects because it's all in my control. I mean, I can, look, it just takes the discipline and the knowledge to be able to do it. The promoting the book is a thousand times more difficult because you need to figure out who you want to get to, how to get to them, who you're competing with, what, what are the best strategies of being able to get in front of them. Is it, you know, bulk sales? Is it individual sales? It's a, it's a long, and that's what I, I, I learned uh, through each book, and I am still learning. I'm still mm -hmm. learning because this is just a, you know, selling books is a tough, tough road. Yeah, yeah. it's a that's a long tail. Um, to your point, it's people only focus on the creation of it. But in terms of marketing, like, is that something you've taken on um, by yourself? Do you work with strategists, partners, marketing companies specifically? Well, I've always brought on people to help me because mm -hmm. I realize that I know innovation. Mm -hmm. I don't know marketing books, so I've always brought people on. It doesn't mean that they were successful in doing what I wanted them to do. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who make a lot of promises about what they can do, right. and then they don't deliver. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm very skeptical in, you know, about a lot of the internet marketing world. I mean, there's just mm -hmm. a lot of people that I've worked with before that promise everything and deliver absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I also realize now that 
even though I will never be the expert on book marketing, I have to know enough to be able to make some decisions and not always trust the people that I hire, unless I really like have a massive amount of faith in them, which hasn't happened too too often these days because I've just been burned way too many times. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being very honest on this topic because um, somehow two days ago when I interviewed Inna, um, the owner of Inna's Kitchen, she is a very serious cook. And one of the things she said is, um, the lessons learned, she gave me two points. Uh, and the first one is you have to be a cook, that you have to understand the process and cannot be someone who's very interested in cuisine or a foodie or something. So I think that that is a very, very valid point, which as a young author or less experienced author, um, I bet it's something that I don't even think about, you know, all the hard work, the long tail hard work uh, behind mm -hmm. the release of the book. Um, I, I have to jump right into one of uh, my favorite ones. Okay. Um, you know, I, I've gotten copies of these and um, they're on my bookshelf and um, I feel like it's, it's very, um, it's very, these books are very special to me in addition that we're friends and it's somehow uh, more impactful on my life knowing you haven't been to your seminars and workshops, in particular uh, personality poker is such a fun one to read and uh, it's not just reading it is playing yeah and if you remember about a couple of years ago could be longer that it was at one of your workshops several years ago, yeah. several years ago and I believe it was at MIT mm -hmm. and um, I it, that that session blew me away and ever since then I've been wanting to talk to you and interview you and the reason is you know sometimes in a moment um, it, it reflects upon your biggest fear is for me not to not only to speak in front of a, a crowd but people that you've never met before you don't know where they're coming from I remember you're there your books are there um, beautiful books and just room full of people and I just by looking around and honestly I had the sense is like they're coming from such different backgrounds and even just the age span from somebody looks high school or college-ish and for me you know I've been working for maybe five, six years at a time and people who are uh, significantly older than I am. And how do you then capture that an hour or two of their attention? And what's really amazing coming out of that is like everybody was so engaged, myself included, after such a long day of working, I was so engaged, it was so fun and uh, was extremely memorable. And, um, you know, in, in addition to uh, just praising uh, your work, and I know that um, you have even way more reputable uh, like presence at um, TEDx, I believe NASA, NASA there. Mm -hmm. And how do you create and how do you approach such a crowd and how do you um, sort of condition yourself to step on that stage? Wow, it's a lot of questions in one. Yeah, I think one, one thing is that I've, I've really started to think about this. In fact, the blog entry I started to work on this morning was on the difference between mastery and performance. And we seem to operate from the perspective that being a master is, is what we need, but actually mastery is a small part of the equation. So coming back to you know, the person who's, who has the restaurants and being cook, you know, being a great cook is important, but that's the mastery part. The performance part is the experience that gets created for everyone. Mm -hmm. So I could be a master of my content. I could know my content deeply. Uh, I can have it, you know, just so uh, could be the best content in the world. But if it doesn't translate into a performance mm -hmm. that is going to engage people, then I've missed the mark in terms of being able to 
have any kind of impact on their life. Mm -hmm. And I think you need both mastery and performance. You can't perform without mastery. I think then, and I love, you know, like I said, magic. I've seen magicians who are masterful. Like they're, they are so unbelievable at the, the, the movements and the effects and the sleight of hand, yet their performance just sort of leaves you like, okay, that was an interesting trick, but I don't feel emotionally engaged. Mm -hmm. So that's why I look at all of those. And so when I speak, I actually don't speak. There's very, very few speeches I've given, which is me getting up there and just talking. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's about how do I engage people, not just emotionally, which is what a good speech does, but I want to engage them physically. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love personality poker is because uh, I can take a room of 20 people or 2,000 people mm -hmm. and we can play this card game where everybody in a matter of minutes will see insights about themselves, about their team, their company, their partners, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and it's just fun. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that what we do has to take into consideration not just the knowledge that we have, but the experience. Mm -hmm the performance that everyone has. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm always looking at, both those parts of the equation. And quite honestly, I think I spend as much time on the performance mm -hmm. as I do in the mastery. I focus as much on the delivery of the content as I do on the content. Mm -hmm. This is very insightful, and I can relate to that in terms of uh, martial art, as you know, I mean, Adam and I both practice, and um, our instructor, Michael O'Malley, not only he has competed and completely mastered the skill, but he also talks about teaching in front of 20, 30 people in a class multiple times a day is performance. Yeah. And um, engaging people, it's a, it's, I feel like in itself is a mastery. And one of the takeaways, and I realize uh, being very absorbed into your workshop that day, that for the, for the first time I thought I looked around the audience, like people I've met for the first time, and some I might never see again. But somehow I felt like a team, and I know that you dedicated an exercise, you know, so we break into different groups, um, different silos, but it, the exercise, you know, even though it's, you know, I can see what works for corporate, or in this case, we don't know anything about each other, but somehow we are all related, and I, I get a sense, like, everybody actually cares. It made me imagine, what if we are actually a team, like a real team together right here, to build something or anything, and it becomes a possibility. So at that level, like that, create that emotional bond that I did not expect at the workshop. Mm. You know, so um, that's something I still remember. You know, and you know, we still talk about me and my friends who happen to be at the workshop. We still talk about that moment, and we, I wish to be able to go to more of the events that you um, you um, are speaking at. So well, thanks. That's. Uh... That's quite a compliment. Uh, that, I guess that is what I strive for is mm -hmm. it's if you think about a speech and workshops are a little different because that was, you know, 30 people, whatever it was. You know, most of my events are 300 or a thousand or a couple mm -hmm. thousand people. And it usually feels like it is somebody up on the stage and talking to a dark audience where, mm -hmm. you know, it could be one person, a thousand people and nobody would really know that somebody's sitting next to you except for the fact that you feel their elbows and maybe you hear them laugh or something mm -hmm. at some point. And that's not my, what I want is I want there to be some kind of connectivity mm -hmm. throughout the experience so that everybody is not just aware of me, but they're aware of themselves. Mm -hmm. So even some of the activities that I do, 
um, which are maybe something to do very, I mean, they could take 30 seconds to do an activity mm-hmm. where they gain some insight about themselves, but then in the process of that, I'll do it in a way where then they can also see that they're very much like everyone else in the room. Mm-hmm. So I can, with even just a three minute activity, mm-hmm. 2,000 people, have everybody have a sense of I'm connected to everyone else in this room. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really want. And, and that's one of the things which I'm working on right now is we've, we've just launched a new mobile, mobile gaming app, mm-hmm. which when I leave the stage after a speech, mm-hmm. if the client wants to, or if it's an open event and we want people to just sign up for it, we create a 30-day competition so that everybody who's in the audience, even if they don't know each other, are now entered into a challenge where every single day they'll get a different question about innovation or their industry or their company. Mm-hmm. They get points. Again, to me, the whole thing is creating that experience, which doesn't end when I leave the stage. Mm-hmm. It's how do I create an experience that lasts well beyond you know, the speech? Mm-hmm. And is this not just an intellectual connection, but is an emotional and physical connection? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that is in a very special way that I hope the world begins to turn around in that sense. And I think that's why people feel connected. Is social media, unfortunately, uh, multiple forms and the companies involved, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn even, have taken people away from that emotional connection. And I think when you go to events, and I personally have the pleasure to go to Future and MyText, and to your point, it's the keynote presentation, thousands of people in the same room. But I think once you've made it there, to have a speaker like you on stage really create that atmosphere. I think everybody is um, eager to participate or to be involved in. And I think deep down, there's um, the emotional uh, connection you've created is something that's been lacking in our day to day, unlike, you know, before the internet, basically. And I'm trying to track down, track back, that could be 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions I thought about, there's a list of questions I was thinking, as soon as we're able to do this, I've got to be able to pick your brain a little bit. Innovation as a subject has been changed, you know, sort of, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions even associated with it. And because you're, uh, you've been in the business uh, very early on, even before our friendship began. Um, So I was wondering, just observing the waves of innovation and you know um, these keynotes events in the past the keynotes relatively new but the past 15 to 20 years how has innovation evolved mm. um, in your you know in your vision where has it taken well when I first started doing innovation work which is sort of like 1995 1996 time frame mm. uh, nobody was really doing it and innovation was synonymous with product development so if you looked at an R&D department or the people who were manufacturing product, that was innovation. And what we've seen over the past, I guess, pretty much 20 years now, is that innovation has come out of the R&D laboratories. Mm -hmm. It has become a little more democratized Mm -hmm. internally and externally. So we see that companies, when it comes to innovation, aren't just looking for a few smart people in white lab coats Mm -hmm. who are high on a mountain trying to come up with answers, but they're trying to get everybody engaged in the process. Uh, whether it is they have competitions. You know, we, we've seen companies that have Shark Tank competitions internally or mm-hmm. their versions of The Apprentice or whatever it is, but they're trying to get people engaged. And they use technology. Technology's also evolved so much to the point where we can collaborate virtually, whereas it's much more difficult 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think it's that virtual collaboration which has really changed things a lot. We can 
put in a platform that allows us to have everybody in a company mm -hmm. submit ideas mm -hmm. or better yet have people find solutions to well-framed challenges that the company thinks are important mm -hmm. uh, and then you take it a step further and now we can go externally which is something which is a even though it's been done in the past to the scale that it is being done now is very different so we're using crowdsourcing and open innovation and other methods for being able to gather insights from people outside the company gather solutions from people outside the company gather ideas from people outside the company so I think the biggest change is the move from innovation being the same as R&D to innovation being this pervasive mesh that mm -hmm. sits within a company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's exactly um, the the sort of uh, an answer that I you know I feel like most people are going to struggle to answer, um, and I don't think and I think it's a, it's a topic a lot of my friends, my coworkers are struggling with, but nobody has been able to dissect you know, sort of the, the vision, the growth of it. So you have mentioned the tools, um, the technology forefront that has enabled uh, collaboration on innovation. And I was wondering, is there, you know, based on personality poker, you've created an online game where people can go to your website and play around. What are some of the tools and resources that come to mind uh, that have sort of supported your initiatives on and off the stage? Well, there, there, there's sort of two different things. One is, you know, what enables innovation and then what enables me. I mean, as a speaker, uh, I just love the fact that my iPad mm -hmm. is a remote control to my Mac. So my MacBook Pro is connected up to the projector. Mm -hmm. And then I use my iPad to connect through Bluetooth or Wi-Fi to it. And I'm able to control my slides. I can mm -hmm. change the order of my slides on the fly mm -hmm. without the audience ever knowing. So if I'm for some reason running out of time, mm -hmm. I can skip five slides without having to <laughs> show them the five slides. But more importantly for me is I love to engage an audience uh, not just through slides because slides are pretty static and most of mine are just pictures, but through drawing. Mm -hmm. I like to draw as I give a speech. And so... Uh, what I'm able to do is actually draw on my iPad and it will show up on the screen. So my iPad connected to my Mac becomes a basically a, a whiteboard. Yeah. yeah. And that and it's even been scientifically proven that that type of presentation style increases your level of retention. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's something about watching somebody create something in the moment mm -hmm. that activates a different part of the brain that has us more engaged, has us feel as though it's being created for the first time. This is a can. He's mm -hmm. doing it for me right now. And mm -hmm. it's almost like a form of magic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really has that same experience in the brain. So for me, that's been, I think, probably the most powerful technology for speaking. Uh, when it comes to innovation, it's just all the collaboration technologies. I think the key thing is we've moved technology from about computing and automation to about collaboration and networking. Mm -hmm. And if I look at what really has helped companies the most, yes, ERP systems, you know, systems like SAP and Oracle are great because they can automate mm -hmm. tasks, mm -hmm. which makes you efficient, but they're not as good as collaboration, which is really saying, how do I work on a project where somebody's in another part of the world or in a different time zone or not even inside my company? Mm -hmm. And there's just so many I mean, the, the list is endless. I mean, so one company that I like is Innocentive. Innocentive is a company that uh, 
is basically a, primarily an external crowdsourcing company. And what they do mm-hmm. is if you have a challenge, you're trying to solve a problem, mm-hmm. they will post it on their website and they have, depending on how you count, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of experts who mm-hmm. will try to solve those problems. And they've solved some absolutely fantastic problems that mm-hmm. in some cases weren't able to be solved by the experts for two decades. Yeah. So that's to me the, that collaboration mm-hmm. uh, is being able to say, hey, I've got this problem, do you have a solution? Mm-hmm. Uh, or what ideas do you have? Or what do you think of this? And we've seen crowdsourcing being used in so, so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's really, and those tools are getting more and more sophisticated as time goes on. Yeah, um, I wonder in terms of some uh, other companies that came to my mind in you know very similar to you, and those incentives are Stack Overflow, um, Stack Exchange, and Quora. Are you also mm-hmm. active on some of those platforms or? A little bit. They're not my sweet spot, but I've used other ones. For example, you have 99designs yeah. oh, uh, and Logo Tournament. So if you're into design work, mm-hmm. those are really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Topcoder, which is sort of a high-end one. I don't use it, but my clients use it. Topcoder is a crowdsourced platform, you know, crowdsourcing platform for programming uh, software mm-hmm. or creating algorithms or for doing design work around computer systems, user ex- experiences and the interfaces. So mm-hmm. there are just so many mm-hmm. out there that are, I think, so fantastic. And the ones which I think are the best are the ones that don't just say, hey, give us your ideas. Mm-hmm. Like my Starbucks idea is a crowdsourcing platform that Starbucks uses. And they've received now, I think the number is about 300,000 ideas. Mm-hmm. If you think about 300,000 ideas, that that's a lot of ideas that you have to sort of sift through. Mm-hmm. And it also means that they're not gonna implement 300,000 of those ideas. They've implemented you know, less than you know, uh, I think a hundredth of a percent of, you know, whatever it is, it's like so small. Mm-hmm. So that means that 99.999% of the people who've submitted things there didn't get their mm-hmm. ideas implemented. So that's ideas. I'm not a big fan of ideas as much mm-hmm. as I am about solutions. Mm-hmm. Hey, we've got this problem. Mm-hmm. Here are the parameters for it. Mm-hmm. And this is actually something which Dell learned with their idea storms. They, at first were saying, hey, what are all your ideas around technology? And they got so much and they got inundated and blah, got like mm-hmm. overwhelming. And then they said, okay, we don't want your ideas now. Mm-hmm. Here's a two-page brief on a problem we're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Help us solve this. Mm-hmm. And those briefs really help get people focused. Because mm-hmm. uh, one of my beliefs is you don't want to think outside the box. You want to find a better box. And that better box is a well-defined challenge mm-hmm. that people can find solutions to. Mm-hmm. You've raised briefing and it's something that I realize is a question I've never asked anybody uh, even out of all my smartest friends but it's been an internal struggle for ages uh, here we mean you know regular business briefing creative briefing something sure. to the creative team and uh, with my background in technology you know we have clients come to us and this is our problem and oftentimes the problem itself is kind of ill-defined and we are limited to resources. So I'm really, I'm really interested in picking your brain in terms of what do you think are some of the critical elements that need to make their way into briefing and oftentimes are not seen on standard traditional briefs. I'm sure being used everywhere still. Uh, well, I think getting the brief right 
is so important. I mean, Einstein didn't say this exactly, but he, you know, short version of what he said was, if I had an hour to save the world, I'd spend 59 minutes defining the problem mm-hmm. and one minute finding solutions. And we tend to run around spending 60 minutes on solutions and mm-hmm. we don't really know why we're doing it and what it's trying to solve and is it solving the right thing. Mm-hmm. So I think you know the key to me with briefs, and obviously a brief for a logo is going to be different than a brief for a uh, you know trying to find a new chemical compound, which is going to be different than a brief for mm-hmm. trying to solve a problem around education. So mm-hmm. the briefs, there's the, the key is to have enough boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I use something I call the Goldilocks principle. The Goldilocks principle is basically where, if you think about Goldilocks and the three bears, she goes mm-hmm. into house. One bed's too soft. One bed's too hard, mm-hmm. and the other one's just right. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, the same thing that we need to think about when we talk about briefs or when we talk about, uh, you know, challenge statements or questions, whatever we want to call them, is that we don't want them to be too broad and abstract. Mm-hmm. Too broad and abstract invites too much noise. The Deepwater Horizon oil spill had 123,000 submissions on how to stop the flow of the oil after the explosion. Practically none of them had any value at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the abstract. We tend to do that. We tend to say, well, how do we increase performance? How do we increase sales? How do we increase productivity? How do we reduce costs? And we create these really abstract, big, fluffy briefs that are too unbounded. On the flip side, you don't want to be too specific. You don't want to have a brief that implies a particular solution. Because mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, briefs are uh, solutions masquerading as a brief. The brief should actually be a question. It should be a question that needs to be answered, Mm -hmm. that we don't know the answer to, but we can create experiments that allow us to test it out. Mm -hmm. So we don't want it to imply a particular solution or even a domain of expertise. Mm -hmm. Very simple example on that is the Exxon Valdez oil spill, spill 1989. Uh, 20 years, two decades, oil experts were trying to stop the water from freezing because the cold water in Alaska, every time they would extract it, would freeze. And it took 20 years before they realized they were working on the wrong problem. They assumed, again, coming back to the Goldilocks principle, they assumed that the problem was an oil problem, very specific. They assumed it was temperature related, very specific. The reality is the issue was something called viscous shearing, which is a common fluid dynamics issue which happens in any dense liquid. Mm -hmm. If you put a dense liquid under a force or acceleration, it will appear to freeze. So they changed the question, they changed the brief. How do we stop viscous shearing in a dense liquid? And they found a solution, not in two decades, but in six weeks. And that came not from an oil expert, but rather from somebody working in construction who is working with wet cement. Mm -hmm. Because the same exact problem happens with cement as it was happening with the oil. And so the brief has to not be too abstract and not too specific. And I would also argue the brief should have uh, clear evaluation criteria. So we should know, because we want at least some level of objectivity. Mm-hmm. How do we know this is good or not good? Mm-hmm. Part of that is because we want to discourage people from providing solutions that are outside the boundaries of what we're looking for. Maybe it needs to cost a certain amount. Mm-hmm. Okay, we need to make sure that we have those boundaries. Uh, the other reason is that it allows us to have to know what we want so that when we get it, we can say, this is it, I want it, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Long yes. answer. <laughs> no, no, this is fantastic. 
And I, to your point, you know, measurable business uh, results and critical success factors, those really should be included um, in within the brief so something is measurable. And I feel like that's oftentimes a missing piece uh, in the end. And so interesting, I think I'm going to improve upon my own brief after this conversation. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and you are in a career that I find very fascinating. And I think there are so many people uh, beyond what you know, it's known in public, trying to go down a path of becoming a general like entrepreneur, um, and it's a it can be a career of challenge to pursue um, for people at different stage of their current career, fresh out of school or not. And I'm a fan of talking to people about their daily routine, and um, there's a lot of interesting findings. And I was wondering. Uh, how perhaps every day is different for you and but what is what is your day like Ooh. when you travel versus when you're not traveling okay. and let me just point that out like being friends with you on Facebook I feel I feel like you travel you know 364 days of a year about uh, 200 <laughs> 200 200 to be accurate so I feel like maybe potentially you have two different types of lifestyles at home versus on the road almost split in the middle but yeah. more travel and I would say there's at home, there's on the road for work, and there's on the work on the road for pleasure. Yeah, because they're actually very different. <laughs> uh, and I don't have routines. I, I wished I did have routines. I'm not like my second book is called Goal Free Living. I mean, I'm 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 a guy who believes in meandering with purpose. Mm -hmm. So I figure that I don't really know where I'm going. Mm -hmm. So the best I can do is keep my keep a broad peripheral vision and allow me to sort of look for and sense clues that tell me that I need to change direction or that this is going to work or this is not going to work or, oh, hey, I haven't even considered this. How do I go over here? So instead of narrowly focused like we do with goals, mm -hmm. I try to keep just this, this open mindset, mm -hmm. which means that... Uh, uh, and also, I think coming back to personality poker, my personality poker style is what we call diamonds. Diamonds are the creative, experiential ones, but the downside of being that is, in many cases, we're scattered and disorganized. So that is that is you know how I uh, tend to fall. And so I don't have a real routine. Mm -hmm. I'm almost driven by inspiration. And there are some days where I'll wake up and I just am not inspired. So if it's a nice day, I'll walk the beach. Fortunately, I live near the beach. So I'll, I'll walk the beach for two hours and you know either listen to music or listen to nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm inspired, I will write. I try to write you know three blogs a week if I can. Mm -hmm. Not always successful at that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's, I guess it's not a routine as much as it is a hodgepodge of things that I like to pick from that when I'm inspired to do them. And I guess that's, you know, somebody once told me that you don't want a to-do list, you want a could-do list. Mm -hmm. You want to keep your to-do list short and your could-do list large and your could-do list are all the things that are possible. Mm -hmm. And I spend a disproportionate amount of my time on things that I would call innovation. And what I mean by that is it's creating a new product, creating a new service, creating something you know creating something new that is not just an extension of what I've done in the past and I love that uh, mm -hmm. if I look at the things that I do that are routine mm -hmm. they are typically uh, reading mysteries <laughs> or reading lateral brain teasers or studying magic 
those really it's are prob- those are probably my only routines that I have and it's partly because I'm always inspired to do that mm-hmm. I'm not always inspired to write I'm not always inspired to you know create something new mm-hmm. I'm always inspired to either do mysteries or magic what are some of the books uh, in terms of mystery and magic you're reading or you have read in the past uh, mysteries well I, I am about 90% of the way through the complete collection of Hercule Poirot's short stories, which are every single Agatha Christie short story with Hercule Poirot. It's a nice 900-page book. I imagine that. Uh, is, <laughs> it's excellent. Really, really great. Uh, and I also love, uh, there's a guy by the name of High Conrad, H-Y, High Conrad, who is one of the writers for the TV show Monk. Mm-hmm. And he has a whole series of these uh, mm. books, which are sort of murder mysteries and lateral brain teas teasers woven together and really what it is is you have to challenge your assumptions we make just so many assumptions so I love those because they're again they're uh, they're just great ways of of question you know expanding the mind and looking for clues but at the same time not keeping a closed mind while looking for the clues because good mystery writers do everything possible to have us believe one thing Mm. while something else is completely the truth is something completely different Mm -hmm. and that's what I find to be the case with innovation is we believe that we're working on the right product or the right project or we're going to introduce whatever it is but the reason why 70% of innovations fail is because we were fooled we were Mm -hmm. fooled Mm -hmm. into believing you know we always say yeah but is the enemy of innovation it's not the wow this is a great idea mm-hmm. is the enemy of innovation because when we get attached to an idea mm-hmm. confirmation bias kicks in and when confirmation bias kicks in we will never see any of the evidence which mm-hmm. disproves mm-hmm. our really strongly held beliefs mm-hmm. you'll only see the evidence that supports it and uh, I think that's very true in medicine and oh, everything. you know it, it, that really is true in everything because that reminded me of having this conversation with a woman in um, She's a, I guess she's a portfolio manager. Now she manages you know, $50 million in assets. And one of the areas she's really keen on is healthcare. And she, we had this extended two-hour conversation about um, hepatitis C um, has been cured nearly for the most part in the past five to 10 years. However, hepatitis B, which is very, uh, unfortunately, very invasive in certain parts of the world, has been a huge challenge. And I understand, you know, I was asking her why, and she said, well, every time they identify, they feel like, the medical profession feel like they've identified the virus and the cause. And it's always become something else. And they realize they've always tracking down the wrong virus. I'm sure she was explaining the story to me in a way that I, you know, I don't know, I don't have much knowledge in this domain. But this, you know, this, the wrong chase around has been going around for years. And it's exactly to your point. Yep. Um, well, and the, the interesting thing about that is what we do as scientists or innovators or entrepreneurs mm-hmm. or business people is we will design experiments to prove what we believe to be true mm-hmm. we very rarely will design an experiment explicitly designed to disprove mm-hmm. what we believe mm-hmm. and this to me is why that happens is we can find a lot of confirming evidence mm-hmm. But confirming evidence, there's a difference, and, and this is one of my, my favorite topics is you know, sort of causation versus correlation versus coincidence. Mm-hmm. And we tend to 
if we have a belief, I, well, election day is today. Mm. And it is so fascinating that people on opposite sides of the aisle can listen to exactly the same information and hear something completely different. Mm -hmm. That to me, you know, the, the political system is the best example of how the brain operates. Mm -hmm. We aren't wired to support the other side's belief. We're only wired to support our own belief. Mm -hmm. Therefore, coming back to your whole point about medicine is we have a strongly held belief about what we think the virus might be or what the solution might be or you know, an innovation, what the product or service or business model should be. And we just don't ever, we just don't have the capacity mm -hmm. without consciously making a, a concerted effort mm -hmm. to look at it from a different perspective and actually sit on the other side of the aisle. So that is the end of part one with Stephen Shapiro. In part two of our conversation, Stephen talked about how he engages his audience viscerally, the imposter syndrome, and he answers questions that have not been asked before. To listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, where you can find show notes, links, and other tools and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at FaceWorld. Until next time, thanks for listening.